Father, that's our prayer, that you would take our life and that you would make it yours, that you would use it in any way that you would choose. Take everything that we have, silver or gold, all of the gifts that you've given us, and that you would use them. Father, we're grateful that you haven't left us alone, that you have not left us as orphans, but you've given us your spirit to dwell in us. You've given us your word to tell us who you are and to inform us of the truth of your presence in us. Because as we walk around, we might wonder at times, but we don't have to. So this morning, I pray that you would use me as your messenger, your word and your spirit, that you would transform our lives, that you would equip us for your service, that we would be witnesses who would talk about the grace of Christ the way that it has affected our lives so that we would bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. As you do, go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. <clears throat> Acts chapter 4. Um, Bill's last few weeks been beginning to take us through the book of Acts. And um, we understand that what's going on in the book is the building of the church, that Luke, as he writes it for us, he's given us an account first in his gospel of everything that Jesus began to do and to teach, and now as we enter the book of Acts, the early church, he's given us an account of all that Christ continues to do and to teach, even as he's been ascended and as he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, he is continuing to build his church. Um, he is not absent, he is abundantly present in what's taking place and all that's going on. And he is empowering and enabling his people to be witnesses, to talk about him and to demonstrate all that he intended. And so that's what's taking place. And as we come to this passage, Acts chapter 4, I'm going to read 5 through 13, an account here where we have Peter interacting with the Jewish leaders of the day. Um, it follows a, uh, a miracle in which uh, Peter heals God heals through Peter, this lame man, and uh, this guy is walking around now, and he begins to, and Peter takes an opportunity to explain what takes place in chapter 3 as he presents the gospel, explains this man is healed because of this. The, the leaders, the Jewish leaders of that day, are, uh, they don't like this. People are coming to faith. In verse 4, we see that a 5,000 had come among the number, and so now as we come to this passage, it's Peter's response to the uh, opposition that he has. I'm going to read 5 through 13. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in, the midst, they, in, the, in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? The, the miracle they're referring to. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that is rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then verse 13. And now when, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated 
common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. As so we see this passage again, Luke gives us an historical account. He says, this is what's happening. He's describing a situation for us in which Peter's standing before the Jewish leaders and he, and he begins to interact with the Jewish leaders. What I want to focus on this morning is one phrase that we see in verse 8. And in fact, we see it throughout all of, all of this book and other places in the Bible as well. But it ex- helps us explain what is not visible to the naked eye. And the word or the phrase is this that Luke gives us. Peter, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, did such and such. He said this. And the question you might ask if you're an historian and you have Luke the historian giving us the account of the early church, you would ask, here we have the historian saying, describing what's taking place. We can understand the things that Peter says, but he says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, began to do this. And the question you might ask if you're kind of a, a critique, you would say, well, how do you know he was filled with the Holy Spirit? How do you know that that was true? Everything else he said you can account for, the things that happened, the responses. But when Luke tells us that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, you have to ask the question, how do you know that to be the case? And the question we're going to ask today today is, what is the evidence that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit? And we're really going to go down a line. We're going to ask first, what does it mean to be filled? What's the nature of it? And then what what is the evidence of being filled And then finally, as we look at this account for us today, we have Peter in this kind of extraordinary circumstance, doing this amazing kind of thing, speaking boldly. What does it have to do with us today? What does it look like for us today to be filled, to be empowered, if you will, by the very presence of God? Because that's what we're talking about. A number of years ago, um, when our son... Cameron was probably three years old. We were living here. This was 96, I think. I was trying to remember exactly the situation. And uh, my wife and I, we were, we were living here in Lawrence, and we were sitting in the living room, and Cameron was three. And he was, um, he was doing what little boys do, and he was turning circles. He was just going around and around and around and around, and somehow that was just fun. You remember when you were a kid? That was fun. And Kelly and I are sitting on, on the couch, and in between us and Cameron is a coffee table. And he's standing over here, and he's spinning, and we're new parents, and we're saying he's having a great time. We're having a great time. We're just sitting there. He's having fun. We're having fun. We're just resting on the couch, and you know what happened, right? I mean, the unthinkable (laughs) happened. Within just a few minutes of him doing that and us resting, our peace was disturbed, and the first thing we know, he, he falls headlong right into the corner of the coffee table. Blood is everywhere in our new carpet, and he's screaming, and Kelly's screaming, and I'm going, oh my, you know, what, what happened here, right? Anyway, um, a, few, a few hours later, $506 later, <laughs> and five stitches later, I returned with Cameron from the hospital with these stitches in his forehead. And Kelly and I, if, if you can laugh as you just laughed at that situation, as we reflect on that particular situations we sat there on the couch a funny thing went through our minds just before he fell into the coffee table and you know what the thought was maybe we should do something about this maybe we should step into the situation here because he might just fall and hit his head but then you kind of go nah that won't happen and the bottom line is as you look as I look back on that particular situation 
both Kelly and I were present physically and geographically there in that setting. But the fact was that we were passive as it relates to those circumstances. We were bystanders in, in terms of what happened there. We were not active in terms of protecting or taking care of our son. We were resting and watching. We were bystanders of the situation. As we think about what it means to be filled with the Spirit, the first thing we need to understand that's foundational to this language that Luke gives us, that ties us really through all of Scripture, is the fact that God is actively present in His people. That when we understand that phrase, it means that He is living in us and that He is not passively present in our midst, in each one of us. He is actively present bringing about what he would have for us. He is not there as a bystander. He is there actively in our lives. In fact, it's a theme throughout of all of Scripture that God's filling and that his presence and that somehow his purpose is connected with his presence in his people. And it's an amazing thought, is it not, that the God of the universe, the God that spoke everything into existence, would have any desire to dwell and to live with us. And yet, if you go back to the garden, you find, what do you have there? Adam and Eve walking around with who? God in the garden. They were experiencing this relationship in the presence of God in their lives. Go through the life of Israel and you find what? The presence of God in lots of different ways. You have the pillar of fire and the, cl- and the, sm- and the cloud during the day that guided them, representing the presence of God. You have the Ark of the Covenant of the presence of God. God's presence is there and he's with his people. You move on into the New Testament. You have Jesus and He is called, what, Emmanuel, God with us, his presence with us. Going to Acts 2, as Bill has already talked about, you have this phenomenon taking place on Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, where what happens? As they're filled with the Spirit, you have what appears to be these tongues of fire, whatever that was, resting on them, depicting what? The very presence of God in his people. And if you move on to the very end, if you will, to the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21, you have... John writing this for us, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The very presence of God with his people forever. And so when we think about What it means to be filled with the Spirit, we must first and foremost understand it's about God's active, powerful presence dwelling in us and upon us. And this phrase, being filled with the Spirit, as Luke picks up on it, trying to explain, this is what it means when God dwells in his people in this age. And if you'll look with me in chapter 2, verse 4, I'm going to walk through just a few places where Luke uses this same phrase. It's used in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke as well. In 2.4, you see here at Pentecost... And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Luke, as he explains, as God comes on his people and fills them, he comes to live in them, he fills them. The passage we looked at in 4.8, the same thing. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And then there's evidence of that filling. If you look to the end of this chapter, verse 31, after the, the Christians face the opposition of this particular situation. They pray, and then in verse 31, something happens. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So you see, as they were filled, as they prayed, they were filled, and they began or continued to speak 
the word of God with boldness. So you see that they were filled and something happened. There's evidence of the presence of God in them. Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 55. A person named Stephen who spoke powerfully against the Jews of the day and then ultimately was stoned. We have just before his stoning this description again that Luke gives us in verse 55. But he that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing in the right hand of God. Full of the Holy Spirit, filled with the presence of God. And if you go on, you find that the way he died was no normal death. He died surely as graciously as Christ did. And he resembled Christ even in his death. Saul, I'll just give you the reference here in 9.17. Saul, when he is converted, is filled with the Holy Spirit. Later on in, verse 13, in chapter 13, verse 9, you have Saul as he opposes Elimus, this magician, Saul himself is filled with the Holy Spirit there. And so you have this phrase throughout the book of Acts for us that Luke gives us and he's trying to describe what does it look like when God comes and lives in his people. And he uses this phrase filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the presence of God to help us understand. So if we're going to understand and know what this means, it's first and foremost that God comes and dwells actively in his people. Not passively, but actively. But the next question is, what's the evidence of God's presence? How do we know that this is the case? Like Luke gives us the account, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. How do we know that this is the case? Well, it has something to do with the shape and character of Christ being formed in us. There's a couple of places that are interesting as you read through the first part of Acts. Where even as Luke uses the language filled with the Holy Spirit, he uses the similar kind of language to describe, describe a different kind of filling of a different kind of source, with different kind of evidence. If you look with me in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, we have the same language being employed to describe the same kind of thing, only, only different, if I could put it that way. Acts 3, you have Ananias and Sapphira. You might remember the story. They sold a piece of land, and they wanted to look like they were given the whole amount of it, but they held back some for themselves. And so, in a sense, they were lying by, trying, by putting forth this, this picture of themselves of giving the whole thing. And when, when Peter confronts them, he says this in verse 3 of chapter 5. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back, keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Same language, filled your heart. Satan so filled your heart with greed and deceit that what did you do? What's the evidence of that filling? The evidence of that filling is that you would lie to the Holy Spirit. That you would lie utterly to God. Try to, try to deceive Him. And so you have this filling of deceit and greed bringing about a kind of lying. Look later on in chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. A similar kind of feeling going on. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. What were they filled with? They were filled with jealousy they were filled with their concern for themselves and how they looked in light of the the great things were happening in and through the apostles and what was the evidence of their filling the evidence was they arrested them when they didn't deserve it they threw them in prison as a result of that so we see these kinds of evidences and another reference we won't go there but in acts 1938 another reference there where people were filled with rage and when they were filled with rage, something happened. There was an evidence. This was in Ephesus when Paul was preaching. They were filled with rage and they incited a riot in that particular situation. 
And so what we find is that we can be filled with the Spirit or we can be filled with lots of other things. There is evidence of filling, but the evidences are opposite depending on what we are filled with. And so the question is we ask, what does it mean or what is the evidence of being filled with the Spirit of God? There's three observations that will be helpful for us, I think. First of all, whatever fills us controls us. Whatever fills us in this language is the thing that's controlling us. So if you ever want to know what am I filled with, you ask the question, what is it that's controlling me right now? And you might be driving on the road and thinking, nothing's really controlling me, I'm just driving in my car in the, you know, the classic example of the guy cutting you off in traffic or whatever, and all of a sudden what happens? You're filled with something. It comes in, and the, the, the point is, what will you do? Will you respond to that filling or not? And there's numerous other examples, right, of when we're filled with certain things, with lust, with greed, with deceit, with jealousy, with envy. Those things fill us and they will cause us to move and to act in a certain kind of way. Because those things that fill us will control us. There will always be some sort of byproduct of the things that fill us. If we're filled with the Spirit, we will see the character of Christ formed in us. So the first observation is whatever fills us controls us. The second one is we are never filled with nothing. We are never filled with nothing. The concept of a spiritual vacuum is an illusion. We can't get into some sort of state of mind in which nothing is filling us. That is not possible. Something will always be filling being a part of our thinking and the way that we live and the way we behave. And so the question is rather, what is filling us? What is empowering me? What is directing me? What is controlling, if you will, the thoughts and directions of my heart? So we're never filled with nothing. And the third observation is we take on the form and and character of the thing that fills us. We take on the form and the character of the thing that fills us. Let me give you a physical example uh, one, picture a balloon and you, know, and you can fill it with different things and its character and its form will change depending on what is filling it. You fill it with air, its characteristics are going to be different than if you fill it with helium. If you fill it with sand, the same. It's a different kind of character that you'll get from the balloon. And I learned this recently by watching Mythbusters that if you fill it with soda and uh, Mentos, it'll do something completely different. So kids, don't try that at home. But it would be interesting that the character of that balloon would change as a result of what is in it. And so physically we we can understand that we see that that what would change, that the character changes depending on what's filling it. And so it's true with us. But in a more profound way, not if we fill ourselves with soda and Mentos. I've wondered what that would do. But anyway, the the point is when it fills us, what's taking place? Um, Filled, one definition I found is... is, um, with what this means as we read through this text is that it's to be thoroughly permeated by. Thoroughly permeated by. If you picture a sponge filled with water, filled with the substance, it's permeated all throughout its pores, if you will. It's filled with something. But let's look back at our passage in in Acts chapter 4. I want to ask the question, what is the form and character of Peter? What is the evidence of Peter that he is filled with the Holy Spirit? Do we see the form and character of Christ coming, seeping, if you will, from his pores? And we see that in verse 8. 
Then Peter filled with the Spirit. Look at how he responds to the rulers of the day. Rulers and people and elders. If we are to be examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you've crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that is rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived they were uneducated common men. They were astonished and took note that they had been with Jesus. What do we see in their character? We see a boldness and a courage. In fact, the people acknowledge that. They're surprised by their boldness and their courage. These uneducated fishermen interacting with the men, the most educated, powerful people of that day in their culture. Interacting with them with boldness and courage and grace. With a kind of power and a wisdom that they can't refute. In fact, later on you see them, as they kind of huddle up the, the leaders, they go, what do we do with these men? What do we do with them? We can't refute them. We don't know what to do, so all they do is tell them to shut up. And they don't shut up. But that's all they can do because they can't refute the things that they're saying. And so we have wisdom, we have boldness, we have courage. What about the content of Peter's message? The content is clear. When they ask him, how was this man healed? They don't mumble, but he says, what? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's by his name. And in case there were some other Jesuses out there, in case there were some other Jesus Christs out there, it's the Jesus Christ from Nazareth, and he goes on to say what? The Jesus Christ of Nazareth that you happen to crucify, the same one that was raised from the dead, it is in his name that this man was healed. It was by his power that this took place. And by the way, there's no other way that salvation will take place. The point of this healing is to give this message to be clear that salvation is only through him. When a person is filled with the Spirit of God, they take on the character of Christ. There's boldness, there's grace, there's courage, there's wisdom. At the same time, there's content in the message. And the content is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And you see Peter here unashamedly, boldly preaching and talking about how to explain this man being healed. And you also see the resemblance that Luke gives us, this kind of bystander kind of thing. They saw this boldness and they took note and they were astonished. Why? One, because of who the men were. But then they recognized them. How did they recognize them? Because of the character of Christ. Because they recognized these men had been with Jesus. Because of the way that they lived and the way that they carried themselves. And so the evidence of the filling of the Spirit here is the character of Christ. It's the form of Christ. There's a resemblance that takes place. Now, for you and I, we might not ever find ourselves in this exact kind of situation, this kind of dynamic opportunity to present the gospel to the most powerful people of the day. We might not find ourselves there, but we might find ourselves there. But we can have confidence that the same spirit, the same presence of God that's actively present in Peter is actively present in us, no matter where we find ourselves, no matter the opportunities that God will give us, that he will fill us in the same way. So the basis of this filling, the understanding, comes from the active presence of God. The evidence of the filling we see is in the form and character of Christ, and the message being the person of Jesus Christ. But the question we need to ask 
is how is it that we appropriate this? How is it that this becomes a reality in our lives? What's it mean for us to live out this reality day in and day out? That the Spirit dwells in us. Well, there's a couple things I think it's important, again, for us to know. That as believers, the Spirit dwells in us. That God lives in us. That it's not anything new. That as we've become Christians, that He comes to dwell in us. In fact, He's given us the Holy Spirit. And you read in Ephesians chapter 1, you see that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. That the Spirit, which is the presence of God that comes and dwells in us, is the down payment of the inheritance that we will get in eternity in heaven. Which is interesting to note, if the down payment is the presence of God living in us, what's it tell us about our inheritance? Our inheritance is the very presence of God. To dwell with Him and that He would dwell dwell with us. So the Spirit dwells in each one of us, those who are His. However, the presence of the Holy Spirit is not synonymous with the filling of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit is not synonymous with the filling of the Holy Spirit. There is a difference. I'm not sure I can explain it to you, but it's real. And it's possible for every believer that has the presence of God in us to not be filled. And yet, the intent or the goal or the outcome for all of us is that we would be filled that the character of Christ would literally permeate the way that we live. That the Spirit, and I, I learned this, this is one of those things you learn when you're growing, and it, it's always stuck with me. The presence of the Spirit, it's possible for the Spirit to be resident and not president. Now, it doesn't exactly work, because <laughs> the president still can get vetoed. That's not the point. But it's possible for the, pre, for the Spirit to be resident, but not, I would say king, okay? To not rule in that way. And the point and the goal of being filled, we understand, is that he would rule in our lives. Is this filling that we're talking about, the presence of God, a point or a process that takes place in our lives? The answer is yes. It is a point. It is a process. Let me explain what I mean by that. Is it a one-time event or is it an ongoing process? Yes, it is. We see Peter here, and for each one of us as well, there are particular points in our lives Moments in which God will give us what we need for that moment. Maybe you've been there in those situations where you've spoken about Christ. You've witnessed or that you've you have taken a kind of adversity that you might not have. And you look back on that and you go, how did that happen? Where did those words come from? I couldn't say that again even if I tried. And we can say, I think that's the feeling. I think that's God at work in my life in that particular time for that moment. To see God work. So there is this kind of momentary aspect. And yet if you read through the book of Acts. And certainly the rest of scripture. You see there's a process to it as well. There's a characteristic aspect of being filled with the spirit. In that both Stephen and Barnabas were men. Who were described as being men full of the Holy Spirit. Men who were described characteristically. By the presence of God in their lives. And so it's both a point and a process. In our lives. And so we understand that. And by the way, those opportunities that we get, like Peter gets here, we're oftentimes not necessarily notified beforehand they're coming. We don't necessarily know, but there they are. There's the opportunity. Somebody asks a question. Somebody says something. Boom, there's the opportunity. And it's at that point in time we need to go, okay, Lord, there it is. I trust that you will give me what I need in this moment in time because you are actively present in my life as well as on an ongoing basis. And the final question is, is this something we do or something God does? 
you know the answer. Yes. It's both a point and a process, but it's also something that we do and something God does. Let me explain by, by, what I mean by that. We see a description here from Acts. Luke says, this is what's happening. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is, this is taking place. We know that's the power of God, and we know that the means is the person, Peter. We know both of those are taking place in this historical account, but what we don't know exactly how the two work together. How are the two things taking place where God is working, this power is being appropriated through this man in Peter. And to do that, to understand these both roles, I'm going to ask you to, read, to open your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This helps us a little bit with understanding the answer to this question. How is it that this power of God that is dwelling in us becomes manifested? How is it that it becomes a part of our lives in the way that we live? How is it that we are filled, if you will, permeated by the presence of God? In Ephesians 5, I'm going to read 15 through 18. And and Paul here gives us a pretty short explanation of what this means and what we are to do as believers as we walk um, with God. I'm going to read 15 through 18 and 19. As he's explaining here what it means to really to walk with God. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And you see the result of being filled, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and singing and making melody to the Lord with all of your heart, giving thanks, and so on and so forth in our relationships. So, what we have here is, what does it mean? What is the will of the Lord? He says... In verse 18, there's two parts to this. First of all, don't get drunk with wine. We go, okay, what do you mean by that? It's debauchery. Don't get drunk. And obviously, we can can picture, right, what's taking place in drunkenness. We can picture that what's taking place is something else is taking over me. That I, I am under the influence of something else apart from God. And it's never right, it's never appropriate for a believer to be under the influence of someone besides Christ. And when we are, we're in the wrong. We're not in a good position, and we're certainly not doing the will of the Lord. So, the prohibition, don't get drunk with wine, but then the admonition, but be filled with the Spirit. And the language here is helpful for us. As we look at the command here, it is a command, it's an imperative, be filled with the Spirit. But the verb itself carries with it this idea that it's a progressive kind of thing. It's an ongoing kind of thing. It's in the present tense, and it says... Always be filled. So ongoing, at any point in time where the moment is now, we are to be filled with the Spirit. So it's an ongoing process that, through which that we're filled with the Spirit. So the, it's an ongoing process. But then the, the, uh, the voice of this is different. It's a passive. It's passive. And what it tells us is that the command, be filled, the ongoing process, but it's a passive. And what that means is that it's something that's done to us. You must be dependent on someone else to do the work upon you. And so the command is to be filled, to be always in a position, always ready, always willing to be filled. Always being filled. Understanding that God will fill us. The command is to be ready vessels for his presence and his power. It's to be ready vessels for his presence and power. And we ask the question, how is it that we can be ready vessels, knowing 
that his presence will fill us. Knowing that he is more willing to fill us than we want to be filled. Knowing that he is not reluctant, but he desires to fill and to live in us in this active kind of way. Three things I want to conclude with. The first one, and each one of these have to do with the posture, if you will, of our heart. It really has to do with our relationship with God and the posture, if you can picture that, of our heart and how we relate to God. And the first one has to do with a yielding posture. It's a bowing posture before him. It's an acknowledgement that he is the king, that he is Lord, and he is worthy of all of my life. Joe Harvey spoke yesterday at the men's retreat, and he talked about that, about God is worthy of everything. And so we bow because he is worthy. I alluded to that passage in Luke 14 at the, the, the tithes and offering time where that king comes and they look for terms of peace. The one king says, what would be terms of peace as I relate to this more powerful king? And Christ says, the terms of peace in this situation as you relate to me are everything. I will have it all. I will have all of you. There's no bargaining that will go on in the situation. And so we yield because he's the king. We yield because he will have us all. If not now, someday he will. And so we yield because that's the case. And as C.S. Lewis wrote, he said, There's no use in saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. There's no use in saying later on when he's convinced us, when he's broken us, when we can't even stand. No, choose, no, no point then at that point in laying down. Now's the day to say, okay, it's, it's yours. I acknowledge you are Lord. So we yield because he's Lord. We yield also, certainly because of his power, but we yield also because of his mercy. Romans 12.1, Paul writes this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to do what? To present your bodies as living sacrifices. Why? Because of the mercies of God. Because of this great Lord, this King, has come to us. And he's offered us, not wrath, but he's offered us his mercy. And so we yield as well because of the way that he has treated us. This powerful King has treated us with mercy. And so we yield by confessing our sin of rebellion. We yield by turning over, if you will, by saying, it's yours. It will be yours. It is yours now. The second thing, so we yield. The second is this our heart's desire. Do we eagerly long for his active and powerful presence in our lives? This is a huge question. Do we really long for that? And even as I ask the question, there are times I do more than others. But do we desire that? Do we know what it means for him to come and live inside of us? To be actively present in our lives? Do we long for that? If we knew what it meant, we would long for that. Psalm 37.4, the psalmist writes, Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in him. And what's your desires? If your delight is him, your desire is him. And guess what? He will give you himself. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be satisfied. Those who want him will be satisfied. So we ask the question of yielding of our position of our heart. Do we desire? And then finally, as we come to him, we come by faith. We come believing that he will fill us. We come believing he'll empower us. We come believing he'll give us exactly what we need at that moment's notice. Whether we feel like it or not. Whether it feels like he is present. We believe and by faith we act knowing that he will meet us and he will give us. He will fill in, if you will, what is lacking there in our lives by his grace. Note that each of these, yielding, the desire, and the faith, is both a point and a process, right? 
There's a point at which we say, I believe, and yet I need to believe more. There's a point that I say, I desire, and yet, Lord, will you increase my desire for you? There's a point at which I yield and I lay my life down and I bow my knee before him. And it's, there's a point that we do that and yet we say it's a process. Because every day we have to do the same thing over and over again. And it's not by our power. Whose is it? Is it him or is it us? Yes. He will enable us to do each one of those. The posture of our heart is, is important for him to fill us. For us to be ready vessels. For him to empower us. For his presence to dwell in us and to permeate literally every facet of our lives. But we have a great hope and confidence that he will do that. As we bow the knee, as we desire him, as we look towards him, and as we trust that he will meet us where we need. It's a lifetime process. Ask the question of the text again, what's it mean to be filled with the Spirit? The evidence, the character and form of Christ in us. The content is Christ. Ask what's the process by which we get there? How is it appropriated? Well, it comes by yielding before him. The God of the universe dwells within us, individually and corporately, and he desires to fill us more than we can imagine. He's not reluctant, but he desires and delights to pour himself, himself out into us on a daily basis. The picture in the call of Acts that Luke gives us, that God gives us, that Bill has been walking us through, is that we'd be witnesses, that that gospel, the message, would permeate us. The only way that we will be able to do that effectively to live in the good times and the bad, to speak of him boldly when we're strong and when we're weak as we acknowledge and recognize the truth that the God of the universe dwells in us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you do live in us. We're grateful that you haven't left us alone, but you do. We walk out of here today individually and corporately as your people. Individually, you, the, the same power that spoke the universe into existence, the same power we see present in Peter, will live in us and will enable us to do the most mundane things and the most extraordinary things. We pray that that evidence would be evident in others for your glory. Thanks that you've promised that this is true. Help us to yield. Give us the desires of our heart and make that be you. And enable us, Father, to have faith that would uh, see you at work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I ask all of you to stand. Um, the response to the benediction is Jesus is Lord, hallelujah he is Lord and that's a great thing receive this as God's benediction to us now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all ages both now and forevermore and all God's people said Jesus is Lord Hallelujah.